Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Are you going to be our next governor general? (laughs) Well, considering how good their vetting is. I think you should apply. I think you should apply. I mean, you already know about the rules with respect to how the queen uses the toilet. (laughs) And I mean, that's really useful stuff as far as uh, governor general um, duties are concerned. Duties. You should definitely apply. (laughs) (laughs) You're quite right. They don't, they're not doing any vetting apparently either. So um, none of my political leanings will seem to be a problem. I bet. Right. It's perfect. It's perfect. (laughs) I think this is the next chapter of your life. And I um, look forward to your, what, what would they call that? Your appointment? Yeah, that's probably it. Appointment. Ascendance, your ascendance. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think they'll try to pull something and, and make like an entire group, like like BLM, be the governor general? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yes, the governor general. What a joke. What a giant joke. But you know what? She's actually kind of a neighbor of mine because one of the governor general's residences is like in my neighborhood. <laughs> so You know what the, the greatest thing about this story is who cares? Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, I, there, I just feel like there's like an obsession around this type of story from a certain type of journalist and political person, um, all of whom probably live in Ottawa or like are obsessed with the fact that we're technically a monarchy or whatever. And so I don't know. I just oh my God. get kind of annoyed about the, the way um, that uh, people tell this story um, and who cares. But anyway, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm great. I'm great. How are you? You know, it's uh, back to um, the type of cold that LA gets. So it's back to normal here. So that's good. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's a relief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, tonight we're going to talk about something that isn't necessarily in the news, but there are a couple of newsy things that um, maybe we should touch on before we get into the main topic. Yeah. And um, it's been quite a week. I mean, I hear that literally everything is better in the United States now. Did you have this like catharsis moment of tears that you shed on Wednesday last? Oh, yeah. You know, I, you know, I had, I had chills, you know, there was goosebumps. <laughs> it was... Um, the the clouds opened up actually, and just pure gold was raining from the sky. It was incredible. You really should have been here. Uh, no, <laughs> I no, can I totally imagine <laughs> you singing Greece. I got chills and they're multiplying. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't even watch the inauguration. I <laughs> like could care less. I thought the Bernie memes were were really funny. You know, obviously there's been a bunch of executive orders, some really important things that have been um, reversed, which is like great and really important, like the Muslim yeah. ban and so on. You know, like uh, you know an actual um, uh, attempt to engage in what's happening with respect to the pandemic. So these things are important. But um, there's also been a lot of continuation of the same in some of these appointments that have been made. And, you know, as we all know, we can't hang our hats on um, uh, on a government like the Democrats any more than we can in a government like the liberals in Canada. And so, you know, um, all of that is to say it's like continue to expect to be disappointed, but 
um, not <laughs> necessarily, um, uh, you know, viscerally horrified and living in uh, anxiety in the same way as it was with Trump, but still horrified <laughs> at, in another way, like a slower, a slower, calmer horror. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and, and it's funny that you mentioned the liberals because like already Biden has like just annihilated any progressive kind of shit the liberals have tried to do. You know, the the total review of his environmental policies and canceling the, the, the Keystone Pipeline. It's it's so good. And it's such a good reminder of how completely impotent and shitty the the Canadian liberals are. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, even, you know, they, they made some moves uh, right away on, quote unquote, racial justice, um, you know, dealing with uh, the, the folks, uh, the, the black uprising, which are not great moves. Like they're not, you know, it's not the implementation of um, the legislation called the Breathe Act that, you know, black folks have been calling for here that would make a difference with respect to like how police um, are constituted in that it would defund them right across the country. But but what it does do is it forces um, an investigation into anti-black um, racism uh, in labor in all federal spaces, which, you know, our government, wow. yeah, yeah, our government, you know, there's been this, uh, you know, there's been a complaint filed uh, from um, black members of PSAC for anti-black racism at the national level. I don't even know if this has gotten a lot of uh, press at all. And our government ha- could, the only thing that they could do in terms of the response to, to people calling for an end to anti-black racism is say, uh, all black people who are looking to start a small business, we will provide you with a loan that you will have to pay back with interest. Thank you very much. <laughs> like, if, if they're black you. enough. If they're black enough. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Well, we have some folks that we absolutely have to thank. Um, Thank you, everybody, again, uh, for your feedback and for listening to us and for sharing. And if you've donated in the past week, we really appreciate you. So uh, special shout outs this week to Talon, to Look at This Six, to Tamara, Matthew, Colton, Tala, Ruby, Christina, Michelle, and Sean. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So I know that you've been doing this, uh, the taking a look at the numbers for COVID every night. And I just want to make sure that you know, before we get into the topic that we're going to talk about today, which is going to be fun and very different than what we normally do. But bef- I just want to make sure that before we get into that, that you know that everything is about to be solved because Rick Mercer is talking to the people. <laughs> and once Rick Mercer talks to the people, Rick Mercer, he's telling us to stay home you know, that is what the Ontario government has paid for. And that, that is a strategy that's going to work. And, and specifically, he's speaking to the 18 to 29 demographic. Rick Mercer <laughs> is speaking to the 18 to 29 year old demographic to say stay home so that we can solve COVID. So, you know, it's going well. We should have done a, a, a bag giveaway for every 18 to 29 year old who could demonstrate they knew or know who Rick Mercer even is. <laughs> We'd be giving exactly. away two bags. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, it, I, I said this on Twitter that if, if Rick Mercer had done a rant and he called Doug Ford a piece of shit and a corrupt guy who's killing people, that probably would have had more impact on doing anything for public health than telling uh, young people to stay home. 
And it's another um, empty, pathetic gesture that makes me want to scream. And I, I want to just mention this article also that I saw this past week. And I'm sure maybe you saw it, maybe you didn't. Um, I, I had someone send it to me. It wasn't like I saw it being retweeted a lot of times or anything. And it's an article from the CBC. And it's, <laughs> I can't even believe it. The The title is um, Naming Workplaces with COVID Outbreaks, The Pros and the Cons, or something like that. The Pros what? and the Cons. What? Yeah, yeah. And oh so, my God. <laughs> it's like, hey, we're at month 10. We don't have unified outbreak announcements that are happening in any kind of consistent way across this Canada. No government has mandated that they have to happen. And the CBC gives us a fucking piece that checks out the pros and the cons of naming where workplace outbreaks are happening and and then attributes those pros and cons to the experts. Oh, my God. Sandy, can you think of a con? What would be the con of sharing that information? <laughs> uh, fuck. What? Am I supposed to be like a corporate chill right now? Of course I can't give you a fucking con. No. <laughs> no, they didn't even go that direction. Really? What's the con? <laughs> What would a con be? What what could possibly like people don't go shopping? Like or people fucking want to stay home from work? <laughs> people demand something from their government? What would be the con? <laughs> I don't understand. Oh, well, this is where the CBC just just shines. Just they just shine. Where they where they love the word stigma and they just love sticking the word stigma into a bunch of stuff and being like, "Haha, case closed. We've said that there is stigma." And so they they quote um they, they quote an epidemiologist from Winnipeg uh, who says that she's concerned that we don't make the mistake of equating shaming with accountability and that it could create a stigma around businesses that might have good safety practices but still had an outbreak. Sorry, isn't that what the whole like COVID campaign has been is like stigmatizing uh, people of color, stigmatizing <laughs> young people, stigmatizing people who, who won't just stay home and be, you know, like fucking starve. Don't make uh, the money that you need to make to buy your food for the month. Like, isn't that what this whole thing has been? The only people we can't stigmatize are apparently the people who aren't people corporations. That's what we're <laughs> going with now. Yeah, that's what it is. Oh, yeah. OK, cool, cool. Got it. That's a con. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, it's it, it's just such a classic. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And it's such a classic uh, CBC kind of balanced approach because the only person they have on the pro side, from what I can tell, is Gord Cressy, a city councillor in Toronto, who, like, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what positions him to be, like, we like the expert in this against an epidemiologist, if you're going to go in that direction, um, or, like, why you wouldn't talk to a, a employee whose workplace is currently in outbreak, or how many times, um, you know, public health chalks up someone getting COVID to, quote, unquote, community transmission because their employer refuses to acknowledge and accept that there is an outbreak, or, um, you know, that you live in a community where a lot of people have connections to these plants that uh, are going to get sick from, you know, from the plant, and then still public health refuses to actually name them, like in Manitoba, which was the case at the Maple Leaf plant in Brandon, that it went for weeks before <laughs> before public health actually could say their name. They used to go to press conferences saying, uh, there is that one uh, large uh, congregate setting uh, outbreak. And then the journalists would say, right, what is it? And they're like, uh, we can't, we can't say, we can't tell you. And this article like falsely says that British Columbia, Saskatchewan, they've been consistently giving out this information. And it's like, D did you not check the fucking links in your own article? Because BC does not. 
BC puts out some exposure information, but if you look at who, like what work sites are currently quote unquote in outbreak, they exist within the province. And then you go to the CDC site and it says no workplace outbreaks. I I know it's another layer of journalism. I know it's just a little bit too hard, but fuck off. Yeah. And James Dunn, call me next time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Sorry, just uh, did you mean to say Gordon Cressy or Joe Cressy? Oh, God, Joe Cressy. <laughs> you said Gordon Cressy. Um, yeah, at this point, the government truly is just deciding uh, it's totally fine for all these people to die. And, you know, at this point, they've got to know that, you know, I mean, fuck, they've known this for a while. And I just like really, I don't know, it just like this, this type of thing makes me feel like dead inside, like so um, sad at how gross uh our government officials are that they can just fuck around and not give a shit and i don't know it's just this shit is really fucking depressing (laughs) i just it's there are tangible things that they know that they could do uh, to stop all of the death uh to to um really have an impact on people's lives. Um, you know, we're, we're hearing this week how this is affecting people in the transportation sector. We've known for how long how it's affecting people in um, long-term care. We know how much it's affecting people who have to go to work every day because they've been called essential. We know how it's affecting people who are struggling to make nec- next month's rent. And the government just, like, they are creating videos of Rick Mercer and the media is creating pro con lists. And here we are. This is, this shit's never going to end. I'm just, anyway, no, uh, I feel terrible about it. You know, what is the perfect um, anecdote, (laughs) antidote to feeling terrible? Um, I would love to know. Tell me. Talking about organizing and how to do it effectively. And... That's what we're going to talk about tonight. That is what we're going to talk about tonight. Nora and I are getting back to our roots, and we are going to talk to y'all about organizing on campus. So many people that we have met or connected with recently who listen to Sandy and Nora, who are friends of the pod, are on campuses and are looking for some advice on how to organize. So we're here. We're here to teach you because we been teaching people for years how to do it. We took a bit of a break and here we are. We're back. We're we're back. We're going to create a masterclass tonight um, as we record this on Sunday night uh, so that we hope will be helpful um, for your organizing on campus. Yeah. And if you aren't a student, um, I mean, you can turn off the episode now. You'll probably miss some gems, so don't. Um, But there's also a lot that you can learn about organizing your own workplace or getting more involved in your union or doing something in your community that is effective and that brings people together. And I like talking about campus organizing because all of the necessary elements are there and it really does make it easier to understand what are missing elements when you do start thinking about organizing mutual aid or other kind of community-based things outside of the confines of a campus, because campus is a tiny little microcosm of the world. Um, And, you know, I do want to just say that the fact that folks aren't necessarily even on campus right now, a lot of people aren't, that makes it really hard. But I think that this is also a moment Mm -hmm. where you, um, you, if you are listening and you are on campus and you're wondering... Like, why would I even get involved in the student union? We got we got some answers for you tonight. We've got some answers. And the, the greatest thing, one of the greatest things about 
organizing on a campus, about student organizing, is that the sky's the limit on creativity. You yes. can do and learn whatever you want. Like so much of all of the shit that I do were skills that I developed on campus. I was like, you know, what would be really cool is if I learned how to and then learned it <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> through through some sort of organizing campaign tactic or strategy like the end goal was uh, around something to do with organizing and in the midst picked up a bunch of skills and anyone who's listening the campus is such a great place uh, to do something like that uh, and that's because you know the the student community um, the community on a campus is is connected to everything it's it's not you know there's not just a special interest group for students or something like that that uh, people often tend to think they're like oh students are only about education no of course not students are experiencing racism on campus students are experiencing poverty on campus students are experiencing um, misogyny on campus like like pick anything students are experiencing ennui on campus. And, <laughs> you know, you may want to l- figure out how to uh, plan events or impact that in some way. And even that is a style of organizing that you can um, get these skills, develop these skills through campus organizing. And uh, it is it's just such a fantastic place to learn how to do those types of things. Yeah. So this was a, an episode um, that was inspired by a question from a listener who was like, uh, you folks need to talk about this. We don't know. We don't know what to do. Like, it just seems so desperate. And it's definitely true that the student union movement uh, outside of Quebec and in, inside Quebec, too, um, is in a moment of uh, difficulty. I think that a lot of student unions are struggling, especially um, because as student unions struggle, university administrators see a moment to, to, to seize and to try and crush student organizing. And so as things were becoming more and more chaotic within the student union world in Ontario, for example, Doug Ford knew that finally he'd be able to pass legislation to try and make student unions uh, voluntary on campus. And that memory, and not just student unions, of course, the student press and so many other really important services. And so the memory of like a student union that was functional, that is functional, I I think is lost for a lot of folks who've maybe just come to campus for the first time last year, this year, two years ago, or even three years ago. And I was talking to a student journalist um, uh, from Ryerson about like why do you why do student unions even exist? Why are they why are they important and why are they important to defend or necessary on campus? And I was really struck by that question. Like that's a very basic, important question. And so I think that might be a good place to start. So Sandy, why are these structures even important at all? Well, look, um, one thing that I really hate about the way that student uh, unions are talked about is that often they're talked about like student governments. They're just, you know, a a pretend government, low risk issues um, that that students can just uh, try their hand at becoming the next Justin Trudeau. And that's what a student union is. That is not what a student union is. I mean, that is how some student unions think of themselves, perhaps. But that is that's that is not at all the value of a student union. A student union exists to uh, to advocate for their membership, and their membership are not not some sort of uh, you know this isn't a play government. These are real people experiencing real hardships um, who 
also have real suggestions about where the direction of post-secondary education should go, um, how the institutions should be engaged in our world. And I, you know, I don't even like to talk about it as student politics. I like to talk about it as education politics because, um, you know, education is one of the most um, serious public services that we provide. It's connected to everything. So what happens on a campus, how students are treated on a campus, how, um, you know, the, the, the way that they get to engage in their education and their educational community will impact the rest of their lives. And so the, the idea of a student union and the tradition of Canadian campus student unions are an advocacy tradition. And that advocacy tradition has um, changed so much in this country, um, whether that has to do with the, um, the feminist movement and, you know, reading Nora's book uh, or reading uh, Judy Rubick's book will tell you about that, um, the impact that student unions had on, on um, the feminist movement in Canada uh, to, you know, certainly tuition fees to uh, even the anti-black organizing that is happening right now. A lot of that came from uh, people who honed their skills on a campus student union. And so... There's just so much. Uh, there's just so much. So um, uh, both from the educational, uh, the education politics, but also all the people who then leave the campus and what they contribute to the world afterwards. Yeah, it's really endless, actually, the, the, the influences that you can see from people that that got these organizing skills from a very young age. And not just that, but also the opportunity to confront some seriously fucked up pieces of shit in very important positions of power. And to be able to learn how to stare down power at the age of 19, 20, 21, I mean, it's it's really um, a valuable skill and a valuable experience. And it helps to demystify a lot of, of those um, myths that are built into power that helps maintain and justify the continuance of that power. And, you know, I think it's also important to look at what happens when you do have a student movement that is active and activist. You know, Quebec is a, obviously a really good example of that, where the college system is still mostly free and where the last time there was a serious government attempt to introduce some sort of fee structure, it wasn't exactly tuition fees, um, and cut a, a grants program in, in the province, you know, students went on strike and they and they took to the streets for months and they toppled a government in in so doing. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's not a, it's not by accident that you see that kind of radicalism um, really driven by the college students and um, and the fact that college education in this province remains largely free. You know, medical, dental, uh, law education is the same as undergrad de degrees. There's no differential fees. Uh, graduate degree uh, tuition fees are still also in line with um, with kind of like where undergraduate tuition fees are, not what you see in other provinces either. And so, you know, if, if students don't have that autonomous voice on campus, then no one's going to stand up for them. And the university is going to take uh, every liberty that it can, whether it means um, uh, capitalizing on a corrupt bunch of students who might be in power at the student union, whether it's creating shadow student organizations to try and usurp the credibility or the power or the role of the student union, take away their services or render them uh, render them useless by you know refusing to give their fee or, or whatever, all these kinds of little games that they play. 
So, you know, I, I don't know if we need to talk too much more about how important they are, um, but you might be wondering, okay, like, then how do I actually take it over? <laughs> how do I actually get myself into a position in a student union where I can actually make a difference? And and this is where the student movement is quite different than the rest of the world, which is that it's really not hard to take power back at a student union. You just need to be organized and you need to work harder than the other side or other sides. And um, yeah, I hope to talk a little bit more about that. I know, Sandy, you've got lots of experience uh, in doing that and running campaigns and what that looks like. And I'd love to hear what you think about, like, how do you run those campaigns? How do you do that? Hoo-wee. Um, <laughs> those campaigns uh, taught me so much. I mean, honestly, my undergraduate experience was... I can't tell you much about what I learned in the classroom. I did seven years of undergrad. Three years of those undergraduate uh, years were spent working full-time at a student's union in an elected position. So winning campaigns <laughs> uh, to, uh, to be on my student's union. And so uh, what I will say is that, uh, that they are very difficult. There's, there's, it's, as, as much as Nora is saying that it's easy, it's also difficult to kind of wrap your mind around how to engage in a way that society kind of tells you you shouldn't engage with people at all. So uh, let me try to be less abstract about this. Um, you know, a campus is one of the greatest places to organize because it's already organized. You know, it's you're not trying to form a group of people, although maybe you are. Who knows? Um, that might be one of the tactics that you use uh, to to get a base of people to vote for you. But you you don't need to work that hard because the campus has already formed a group of people for you. In fact, they've formed multiple groups of people for you. There's classroom groups. Uh, there's you know, if you're at a school like the University of Toronto, there's college groups. Uh, it. Uh, wherever you are, there's like faculty groups um, for whatever program you're taking. And in those groups, there's ways to access all of those people at the same time, whether that's going to their classroom or going to information sessions or anything that brings those groups of people together in their group. And that includes, you know, clubs on campus too, community service groups that might be on campus. Maybe it's the Pride Center. Maybe it's the Women in Trans Center. There's all these different groups that you can access and speak to. And so what that takes in terms of organizing is getting past the, um, the kind of uh, resistance that, you know, we're all kind of told, you know, you stay in your, your, your own place. And if you're not supposed to be in a certain place, you don't go there. You need to like get past that, uh, sort of social norm and access all the spaces, go access all the spaces. I remember the first time that I, you know, went to, uh, did a really long campaign, uh, for, uh, for, to work, to, 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 you know, win an election. And, um, you know, I, by the time the campaign was over, I think I had met with some, something like in the realm of like 200 and some odd different groups. It was ridiculous. You know, I would go really, really hard. Um, but it was at the, in the beginning, it was difficult. I'm like, sorry, I need to go into an engineering class and tell them to vote for me because, 
I believe in free tuition and then I need to explain to them why tuition should be free, that sounds hard. It's not hard. <laughs> it's actually really not hard. What's hard is getting past the sense that there's something wrong about that. There's What's hard is getting past the sense that you don't belong in a space like that and you can't reach people um, who are not a part of a group that you are, or who are part of a group that you are not a part of. That's the difficult piece. Um, but, you know, that, that piece of it, you know, I actually quite love that piece of it, going and talking to people and uh, uh, talking to them about a particular issue um, that you care about and why you are the person to advocate on behalf of that issue and why it needs to be taken care of at an institution. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, that's exactly, I, you know, we have such a similar academic background. I also did seven years at my university and I was elected and worked, full, you know, full time for three years uh, on an executive. And, um, and for me, I mean, I was, I, I was asked to run by a group of people who, um, who were not organized, who had kind of dropped the ball and who last minute were like, oh my God, we have a hole in our executive slate. Nora, do you want to run? And I was just a first year student and I said, yes. And of course I was like, led to slaughter. It was really horrible. But that process and then the subsequent elections after uh, really gave me an appreciation for exactly what it does mean to organize. And so, you know, you, you, you talked about how you walk into an engineering class, you don't necessarily feel like that's your space. But one of the ways that you can help make it feel more comfortable is that you also, you know, need to have friendly engineers, for example, on your team, right? So you look at you look at the election rules and you're, you look at your deadlines and you say, okay, we need a, like, we're going to have somebody run in every single position that's available for the board. And um, we're going to make sure that everyone agrees to a set of principles that you can kind of brainstorm together or you can workshop around. You know, maybe there's already a group of social justice people working in something or whatever. You pick some key, key issues, like, you know, you're going to fight uh, for lower tuition fees. You're going to fight against um, attacks on the student union. Maybe your student union's corrupt. And so you're going to, you know, obviously make corruption a really big part of it and talk about how you're going to not be corrupt and how you're going to introduce all of these measures that don't include the university administration um, to help you, um, you know, build an organization that that's not, you know, that you can justify where all the money is and that you can explain how you're using students money to do all these really important things. And you go out and find people to fill that team. You find all of the directors from this course or all of the directors from this program or all of the, the executive members that you need. And ideally on that team, you know, you likely have a structure that mirrors like those colleges that exist on campus or departments and faculties. But then you also need to find out who are the, 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 the best, the most radical, the most loved, the most charismatic folks who are doing good work uh, in other groups and student groups and clubs and, you know, everything from like the South Asian alliance to the role players and gamers to uh, whoever, right, to religious organizations on campus, you, you find those people. And actually, when you put out the signals, they often find you. You build an incredible camaraderie when you do something like this and you meet and you strategize for the election. You, 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 you make your own posters, you make your own website, you come up with lists of people that you can call and you can convince, you come up with class lists where you can go and speak to, to classes, which of course right now would probably be mostly going through, I don't know, professors maybe and seeing if you can like be on their Zoom or their Google Classroom, um, Microsoft Teams or Google Classrooms for a couple of minutes before the start of the class. And you do that kind of basic organizing and you'll find that just by working hard, harder than anyone else, you'll get your foot in the door. If not, you'll, if not bust the door right down. Like it's, it, it, it's hard work, but it isn't complicated work. 
No. And so maybe you're thinking to yourself, you've heard this and you're just like, okay, cool. But I don't like public speaking or public speaking isn't my thing or I'm not really good um, at speaking to people. And uh, you don't have that talent. And so you're like, maybe I need to find someone who has that talent. I promise you, you don't need that as a talent to do any of this type of stuff. And in fact, um, when I started out doing this stuff, I I was clearly not as good at as talking. I mean, I developed the skill of talking to people through my student union work. And I would go into classrooms and I would start um, talking to people. I'd be like, I'm here to talk to you about free tuition. And I am very nervous because this is a really big class. Um, and I am nervous and I just wanted to let you know that I might giggle a little <laughs> bit because I'm nervous. And then, and then I would do my thing. And, um, I think that, it, you know, there's a way that we think that we have to be polished people to be organizers or we need to, we need to be perfect versions of, um, uh, of ourselves uh, who are passionate about an issue in order to be organizers. But we don't. We don't. We don't. We don't. We don't. We just need um, the impetus, the motivation uh, to do something good, to make some sort of change, to, to, to do some sort of advocacy. And you can develop all the skills you want um, through through the organizing. Um, if you feel, if you're feeling nervous about approaching a professor to be, uh, you know, on at the beginning of their Zoom class or at the beginning of the class, uh, having talking about an election or a campaign or whatever it is, bring a friend with you, be honest with the crowd about how you're feeling and just try it, you know, like just try it out because there's literally no other place <laughs> to, to be able to try something like that and develop that kind of skill. It's really um, fascinating the, the types of spaces and the types of groupings that colleges and universities create and even high schools. You know, I know there's a bunch of high school folks who are listening to this as well. Um, you know, you can do this in, in your high school as well. And so, you know, maybe you do what Norris said, you've looked at the rules, you've, you've asked the teachers, and they don't want you to do that. They're like, we will not give you access to these groups. What do you do then, Nora? Um, well, I mean, with the online class, it's definitely a bit, little bit more complicated. But um, one way is to always look at who the student leaders within the department are and see if you can get access to the classes through them, because often there's like a requirement that they're allowed to speak to classes about certain issues. Um, sometimes there's professors who are just complete assholes and you cannot necessarily get into their class. But, you know, you might want to ask around and see if you happen to know anyone that might be in that class and see if they if they have another class, because a lot of times, you know, especially in the lower lower years in a university or in college, you've got really big classes and they actually kind of often go in a cohort so you can get them in another class. Um, and, you know, you probably also want to talk to um, other progressive adults on campus who are not students, right? So who uh, within the faculty association, who within the staff unions, who representing uh, custodial workers or food service workers, like finding out who on campus are the, the people who, um, who can help you navigate who's who on campus is really important. And the nice thing about those folks is because they've been there for a long time, you can look through archives of your student newspaper or even your community newspaper to figure out who the rabble-rousers are, who, the, who are the radicals. Um, because a lot of times professors, I mean, especially right now, things look really, really bleak, uh, especially on campus where 
the campus doesn't really exist in the same way. And all of the changes that COVID has kind of forced on campus life and the classroom life uh, are the kind of changes that administrations are just like always licking their lips over because it's just like the cheapest education for the most amount of tuition fees. Um, and so there's a lot of, I think, despair and anxiety around um, around staff and around faculty as well. So, you know, find those shining lights and, 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 and just cold call them. Like there's no shame in that. And even if it's awkward, like who cares? You're behind a computer, you know? Um, and if you're able to at some point go into someone's office, then you do that. You introduce yourself and you start to figure out um, who on campus holds that knowledge about how things happen, how things have happened in the past. Because I think that there is a real problem with memory on campus, right? Everybody gets on campus and there's not much history before uh, you finished, you started in first year. And getting that history is a really helpful to, experience to find out, oh, wow, our student union used to be radical. And then it just collapsed because of all these kinds of like corrupt stories. And you could place, piece together what may have happened to help give you a better understanding about what you might have to avoid or what you might have to confront um, going forward. Yeah, one of the things that I think is the best thing that any organizer can do um, is, you know, you take whatever um, goal you have, right? Like, say your goal is free tuition, which there should be a major free tuition campaign on right now, because (laughs) when better to run such a campaign than in the middle of a pandemic when everyone is receiving like the shittiest education ever. This is how we know that the student movement is kind of weak right now. (laughs) There there hasn't (laughs) been like an extremely forward facing uh, shut tuition fees down campaign. Like it's unreal. But um, in any case, imagine that your goal is free tuition. You know, just think to yourself, what needs to happen for free tuition to happen? Ask yourself that question. Well, someone on the board of governor, gover- governors or something, maybe it's the majority of the go- board of governors has to vote uh, for uh, tuition to be zero. Or the Ontario government has to vote for tuition to be zero. Or the federal government has to implement some sort of education act that forces tuition to be zero. Okay. Do we have the power to do any of these things? No. So as an organizer, you have those three, you have those three options. Those are the three options. So then you try to go, all right, well, how can we make that vote happen? What is the, you you take a step down, you say, how can we make that vote happen? So now here's another goal that you have. So free tuition. And then the next goal is now, how do we make that vote happen? So you can target your board of governors, you can find out who are the, the, the people who are most likely to vote yes if they were given the right arguments. You can target the Ontario government. You can target the federal gov- government. And then you say, well, what, what sorts of things do I need to do to convince someone? So now you're, you're another step down. You're creating another goal. Well, perhaps we need to give them really good reasoned arguments perhaps we need to do some research and give them some really good reasoned arguments. And then so maybe part of your, you look at your coalition and you say, can we do that? Well, yeah, we can do that. We can't, we can't do the vote. We can't do the voting, but we can do the research that might influence someone who votes. Great. Maybe we need to show them that other people in the world really care about this. Other people who vote, uh, maybe for the Ontario government, really care about this. So how do we do that? How do we show that there are people who have the power to unseat them 
who really care about this? Well, we can do that through petitions. We can do that through rallies, maybe, because if someone is willing to have a rally at Queens Park or at your legislative building in whatever province you're at, then that person is likely willing to vote on this issue. So, okay, that's a way to show it. Um, Maybe we can see if we can get in contact with some journalists and maybe that's a way to show it. The campus press, maybe that's a way to show it. Okay, great. How do we get a rally going? Hmm. Can we just have one tomorrow? Probably not. What do we need? Numbers. Well, we're on a campus with a bunch of groups. Maybe we speak to a bunch of groups and see if we can get those groups to commit to going. And you see, like, if you start from the position of what I want to do is possible, which is, you know, and tuition fee collection, if uh, what I want to do is possible. And you can you can just go down the levels and just see, like, can I have influence at this level? What would it take for me to have influence at this level? Can I have influence at this level? What would it take for me to have influence at this level? And you will create the greatest task list of all time. And that, my friends, is organizing. That is organizing. And um, it is, you can be as creative as you want at any step in the process to try to make any of these things happen. You know, um, and your tactics could be, maybe you're the type of person where your only tactic is, I'm just going to research. Research is the best thing. Yeah, cool. Do that. And maybe your tactic is, we're going to do a sit-in at the at the uh, Board of Governors and we're just going to sit there um, for as long as we can to force them to understand that these are some hard times during this pandemic. And if they don't, if they don't, you know, uh, change the way that they're doing tuition, we're just we're not going to let this university go on. I don't know. And uh, and that's the tactic you take. And that's cool, too. Like you can be as creative as you want, but, you know, you can create this this tree of goals and this tree of possibilities for how you can attack an issue. And that type of thing makes me so excited. Like I'm excited talking about it. It's just like, if you just start from the position of possibility, there's, you can just, you can find all of the different places where you can have an impact. And there's this incredibly satisfying aspect to all of this, which is also the fighting part of it. <laughs> the part where you are oh, like yeah. in hand-to-hand combat over votes or where you are arguing or <laughs> whoa, hand-to-hand combat. Nora's telling a little bit too much about the stories of back in the day I right now. I <laughs> always saw it as that and you're just like always debating and arguing and refining and refining and refining. Every person that you had a chance to talk to, you would refine the way that you talk to to them and you got new arguments based on how they, they, they responded to you. And, you know, like in a lot of these student unions, I know that the, 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 the barrier is there's shitty students in there. So you have to like get rid of your fellow students because they're corrupt or they're shitty or whatever. Right. (laughs) And I was, so in talking with this journalist, um, this week, I was just like reminiscing. I was able to just reminisce and talk about all of the like really massive battles that we got to wage at Ryerson. And in they're and they're funny because they're long in the history dustbin, right? Like the fight that it took to win uh, the a street being closed down the middle of campus. Like the streets closed. And so for the students that go to Ryerson right now, there is no struggle. Um, when I was a student, I knew a, a, a girl on my floor who got hit by a car crossing that street and her mother had to move into her apartment 
treatment room into res to help her because she couldn't walk. Okay. So like that is a massive change in 20 years that this road would never close. And now it's obviously closed. And who did we have to fight the hardest for that? Of course we have to fight the administration because they didn't want that closed. Right. You know, we just like ownership of, of buildings or, or fighting for programs or fighting for services. Every single thing that the student union does was the result of a fight. And that, that process of, of, of debate and of, of struggle and of, of fighting, like for lack of a better word, it, it's like the spice of life. <laughs> it is just the best part of this. <laughs> and, you know, it's stressful and it's not for everybody, but for the folks who do love it, um, that's, <laughs> it's fun as shit, it's so man. Great. Like, <laughs> It's so fucking I haven't fun. had to yell at anybody like in the longest time. Now, actually, that's not true because I guess I'm doing it on Twitter all the time, which is like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, are you right. kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it really is um, important because you get the best ideas when you're when you're debating and when you're arguing. And when you have a team of people who like there's two different kinds of debates, right? There's the debates you have with people who are your enemies and there's the debates that you have with people who are on your side or who you're actually organizing with. And both kinds of debates are so important. And if you don't ever have that experience of being able to have a debate with someone, it's really hard. It could be hard to be assertive in your workplace. It could be hard to be assertive with your family. It could be hard to navigate really difficult situations, like unless you've had like been under fire and having to figure the stuff out at a very young age. It's like, it's very, very worth it. And you know, when you when you openly say, look, we're gonna take back our student union, like just fucking call your campaign that. <laughs> right? That works. <laughs> Uh, you'll be shocked mm-hmm. to see the number of people that come out of the woodwork that are like, wow, I didn't know that was possible or I've been waiting for this or, um, you know, my favorite international students were like, wow, like the way you folks organize here is like pathetic because in my country, students are like part of government. And you're like, wow, okay, cool. <laughs> like, you know, the mm-hmm. experiences that mm-hmm. people have and that they bring bring into that that central organizing body, it is so, 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 so important. And sure, you can be involved in campaigns on campus that are, you know, that are more specific, like environmentalism or or, or racism or sexism or whatever, but when you target that central, independent, autonomous student organization that is funded directly by students and is for students, you find that actually you're able to touch every issue that you could imagine uh, and more um, thanks to the fact that a progressive and radical approach to student organizing means that it's a plurality of issues all kind of united under this idea that education should be free, it is a right, and that if students are the ones going to fight for it, then no one is. And look, you know, um, uh, Nora and I were doing student organizing at a time when, you know, the the kind of skills development that students were offering to each other to make each other better on a provincial and national scale uh, was really sophisticated. It was uh, probably um, the best that it had been in a really long time. And it was so good that like the conservative party and the liberal party spent a significant amount of resources trying to destroy everything that we tried to do on campus. Like that's how serious (laughs) it became. It was hilarious because we were doing so much to impact their work at the provincial and federal levels that they saw fit to expend resources to try to 
shut us down. And for those of you who are listening, like Sandy really is thinking a lot about herself right now. Like that's really not true. Like the student movement in Canada knew about WikiLeaks way before any of those government dumps because um, WikiLeaks leaked <laughs> at some point uh, in the 2000s uh, or maybe 2006. the... 2006, 2006 they, 2007, yeah. Yeah, they leaked that uh, the, the conservative government was organizing against student organizers on, sorry, not the conservative government, the conservative party of Canada was organizing against student organizers on campus who were trying to uh, to implement progressive policy on all sorts of issues. And we were stunned. We <laughs> Like, what? (laughs) Why would they care about this? Why are they doing this? But it was because we became so effective at what we're doing. And so many of the people who were active during that time are still doing effective advocacy work in different ways. And so, like, look, uh, the tradition of student uh, organizing around the world is a tradition of advocacy, except for the United States, curiously. Not so curious. I mean, there's a history there you, that um, <laughs> that if you think about it, not too hard. It makes sense. Um, but the thing that's, like, really unique about the Canadian student uh, student movement is that it's funded. Uh, around the world, uh, student unions aren't funded in the same way that the Canadian um, uh, student union world is uh, in that, you know, the central student body uh, typically gets a mandatory fee uh, from all students that enables them to do really great work. And so uh, the student union, the student movement in Canada goes through these ebbs and flows. But one thing that has remained constant to this point is that it's well resourced. And so when you get in there, um, other countries around the world, they have like fundraising arms uh, of, of their student organizing to try to make sure they have the funds to do what they want to do. But when you it, when y'all do it, when you all get in there, you're going to have those funds. And so um, with all of those funds at your fingertips, the sky's the limit on what you can do. And so, you know, be creative, uh, get in there ask us questions, you know, maybe we need to do a part two on this at some point, because we could talk about this forever. But ask us questions, send us questions about um, what we've said tonight. And if there are specific things that you're struggling with, or you just can't quite figure out, let us know. And maybe we can help. Because if there's one thing that we're experts on, it's choral singing. But if there's another thing that we're experts on, it's student organizing. (laughs) 